You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 105. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we discuss the saying, good, cheap, fast, pick two. It's a common complaint about design and programming, but how well does it apply to archaeology? Let's get to it. All right. Hey, Paul, how's it going? Pretty good, Chris. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, not too bad. Not too bad as we're recording this. It's starting to become sort of spring here in Reno. You know, we got a little bit nice weather, but uh, all that means is massive snow mountain flooding. So, you know, <laughs> good with the bad. Stay out of the arroyos or whatever. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Actually, it, it might provide for some future fodder for this podcast because I'm in the uh, Civil Air Patrol, as I've mentioned many times. And one of the things we've done in years past is we do baseline and condition assessments for bridges and levees and things like that from our aircraft and we take photographs mm-hmm. and now we might be starting to apply our new drones um, that we have in this squadron to these sorties and we're stitching them together with uh, Photoscan or Metashape um, if you want to call it a new one and so that could be that could be a source of some some tech discussions because I'm going to be teaching basically people who have never flown drones before how to fly high-end drones and do photogrammetry <laughs> so mm-hmm. Should be a good time. Yeah. But these people are, are, are all pilots already, right? Not all of them, no. Oh. Only, only a few of them are pilots. I mean, civil, that's a common misconception with Civil Air Patrol is you need to be a pilot. Most of our positions are actually non-flying because there's lots of support to get that one plane in the air. Hmm. So we have ground teams, the, the drone teams. You don't actually need to be a pilot. You need to be a Part 107 FAA drone pilot, of course. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, you can be 16 years old and do that. I mean, our cadets can do that. They can't fly our planes, but they can fly our drones if they get their part 107. And we have the training for that as well. So, yeah, it's not too bad. So if you're if you're interested in drone flying, all Civil Air Patrol squadrons are mandated by National to start ramping that up this year and to have it by the end of the fiscal year to have at least five teams for each wing. And a wing is the state. So if you're interested in that, go check out your nearest Civil Air Patrol squadron and you might be able to get into it. So, okay. Well, Paul, what are we talking about today? Okay. Well, what we're talking about today is something that's been on my mind since uh, I recorded last a couple of weeks ago. Right now, it is uh, late April. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, you were out in the field. And so, mm-hmm. I had a nice interview with Edward Gonzalez Tennant. And uh, at the end of it, he was talking about some different projects that he was working on after we got off air. You know, So, we are having a little chat and he was... Uh, bragging, rightfully so, I think, about uh, something they had just done with GIS, uh, with QGIS for his students on a field trip. And he was happy about how quickly he was able to put together something he felt was was quality. And I said, you know, that's something that, that I, uh, I think about a lot uh, with regards to computerizing our data collection and our data analysis in particular, is that by making things faster, which we often can do with um, with computers and various kinds of digital and technological methods that we use, we can actually make things better. And that, that kind of mm-hmm. seemed sort of to violate what I've been you know, quipping about for a long time. And you can find a million memes on this and a million discru- discussions online, you know, good, fast, cheap, pick two. <laughs> and he agreed with me. And then, uh, you know, we left it at that. Well, as a side note, we, uh, we have been in discussions, you and I, uh, with uh, Edward to have him come back and discuss that particular GIS, QGIS project and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, give us a little more nuts and bolts, maybe even a, a cookbook kind of approach to uh, to how he came about what uh, what he was happy to work with for his students uh, and how other people might be able to then do something similar for their own projects. Uh, but that's an aside. So yeah. a couple days after that discussion uh, on Twitter, as I am way too frequently, I saw Sean Graham, who must be on Twitter far more than I <laughs> <laughs> had a kind of an open question mulling about basically the same sort of thing. I don't know if he used that uh, good, fast, cheap pick too, but it was questions about how using the right tools can actually improve 
uh, your projects in multiple ways at once, uh, good, fast, and cheap being three different ones. And it seemed to me that maybe this is something that's in the air right now, that, uh, that there are probably other archaeologists out there that are thinking along the same sort of lines. And so I would just wanted to have a discussion with you, Chris, because we've not had much time to talk in the last few weeks uh, about mm-hmm. what you think about this idea and where, you know, how really applicable is it to archaeology or is it variable applicability in various kinds of archaeology or different mm-hmm. kinds of deliverables and all above. So uh, I don't know if you have any opinions on the matter uh, straight off the bat. Yeah, Paul, I've got a lot of opinions on this. And and the biggest reason that you, you have to consider is that uh, nothing is actually ever made for archaeology. Uh, and that's the biggest reason why you you won't get all four, you won't get all three of those because if somebody was actually creating some piece of tech specifically for use in archaeology, well, we might be able to actually accomplish all that. Although the cheap part, if you're making it just for archaeology, probably not going to happen because the scale is just not there. That's why. You, you often have to pick and choose. Even Wild Note, something I talk about frequently on here, was not developed for archaeology. It was originally developed for um, biology and wetlands use because that was the initial clients that kind of brought this whole thing around about three years ago. Uh, and then I showed up a little over a year ago, as I've mentioned, and started creating stuff for archaeology based on that platform. Now, we've, we've made it work, and, and it works really well. But again, not designed for archaeology. You know, you, you look at all the other tech we have out there, I mean, from drones to GPSs to total stations to, to the software on your GPS and things like that. Again, not made for archaeology. Uh, look at uh, QGIS, as you were talking about with um, with Edward Gonzalez Tennant and, and Esri products. Again, not made for archaeology. I'm, I'm floored at the price that the money people pay for Esri when really what they're paying for a full suite of products. And yet they're using 5% of it. For archaeology, you know, they're making maps with it. They're looking at, I mean, they're not, <laughs> they're not doing very much stuff with it. And yet they're paying for $6,000 worth of development. Uh, and they're only getting a small fraction of that. So yeah, I, well, I could talk about this, um, that, about this a lot. Yeah. Well, I, um, what I'm kind of thinking along the lines, and, and I suspect that, uh, as we discussed, we're looking at this from slightly different angles. What I'm wondering about is, you know, and I brought this up uh, again on the last interview. I brought it up somewhat with uh, Sebastian Heath uh, earlier this year uh, on this podcast, as we were discussing, um, is that some of the tools allow us to experiment mm-hmm. in a way that uh, that allows us to do a lot of different tests in a way that we couldn't in the past. I mean, I guess it's kind of the same sort of thing. Like a calculator, you can do your math much more quickly than you can do longhand, unless you're one of those whizzes that they used to bring out on late night TV. And that kind of, that ability to to do things quickly then permits Mm -hmm. the researcher to, to do more in a certain amount of time, right? And that, to me, that bit, kind of starts to violate this good, fast, cheap, because you can get good quality results. You can get them uh, fairly inexpensively if you're already using a particular tool set. And you can then, the speed goes back into it, kind of a feedback loop, right? So you can test something, test, tweak it a little bit, test it again, tweak it a little bit, test it again in the same time, same amount of time that you otherwise would have just done one iteration you know, and that improves the quality. And so that's mm-hmm. the kind of, that's the angle I'm looking at it from. Ah. And yeah, I don't want to be all utopian. I don't think that uh, that just throwing computers at something is going to make it better, faster, cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's, I that's really dangerous uh, to believe that. But I do think that it opens up an opportunity uh, for a researcher, either doing data collection or, or data analysis of some kind, to uh, to actually do more of one or the other. Well, I think along those lines, then, you know, it, it really comes down to another phrase we've said on this podcast, which is uh, not an uncommon phrase, but it's basically using the right tool for the right job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge digital proponent, obviously, uh, and, and I try to find ways to, to make what we do more efficient. And often what that means is using some sort of application or, you know, other tool that, that will do that. But sometimes... That's just not the case. You know, I've had conversations with people at conferences where, you know, they're like, hey, I'm interested in doing this. And I end up telling them, like, listen, 
you're you're working in these conditions. You don't have the ability to to bring in extra batteries. You don't have the ability to charge for some reason. I think your best solution is paper. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's just all there is to it. You know, right. I mean, if you're if you're doing X Y Z, then you you know dot 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 paper for you, and that's just a fact. And and other people want to use drones for certain things, but I'm like. You know, uh, because of where you're at and the regulations and the things like that, you might want to consider a kite. You might want to consider a tall ladder, climb a tree, something. But a drone's probably not going to work for you. I mean, people think that when I talk about this stuff, I think it is, you know, I'm just a, trying to jam this solution into into whatever it belongs in. But it, it's about understanding the capabilities of what you're doing and and then figuring out, okay, I have the capabilities of all these tools down. Where do they cross for what I need to do? And, and, you know, in the cheapest way possible, in the most efficient way possible, and uh, and produce the best data. So I still don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I like where it's going. <laughs> no, I, again, I don't. Uh, this question is very open-ended. And I think that's um, kind of the way that, that Sean Graham posted mm-hmm. on, on Twitter. It was just like, there, there's, there feels like there's a nub of an idea here. And I, I'm trying to flesh it out yeah. a bit. Um, I like to use the word efficiency because that's something I haven't seen brought up specifically. Mm-hmm. With regards to archaeology, I'm sure it has been, and I just missed it. Efficiency gets brought up all the time with workers in general, in the workforce writ large. Um, and it's widely recognized that, uh, that you know computers at everybody's desks has allowed for certain kinds of increases of, of efficiency, for, especially for a lot of desk types of jobs. Uh, that efficiency might be games of, uh, mine, of Minesweeper played per hour, but, uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> But I think that's really probably what I'm trying to get at is efficiency, how efficiently one can do one's work using the right tool set, you know, the right tool for the job. Uh, And then because we, especially on the academic side, and this is probably where we have a bit of a difference um, in how we're looking at it. On the academic side, time isn't so much the, the constraint. So that means that you can increase quality by doing more, right, within mm-hmm. this this boundless time. With CRM, I would think time is almost certainly going to be a constraint. And so maybe it's not a one answer fits all archaeologists. It might be you know very contextual by the kinds of work that we're doing. Um, I don't even know. Again, I'm, I'm rambling and I know I'm rambling and I intended this to be kind of a rambly discussion because um, I, I still want to believe that there is a chance that um, that we can start to bend these. Oh, here's an example. Mm-hmm. Photography. We've talked about digital photography quite a bit. You know, when you did film photography, it was quite expensive. Each shot has a price tag, uh, you know, attached to it. Yeah. Because it's going to cost film and it's going to cost processing uh, in order to end up with a usable image at the end. And so, you know, if you're in the field, there's kind of a push-pull. Do I take another picture of this object? Do I take another picture of this trench? What if the first one wasn't good enough? Maybe I do need a second one. I don't know. I can't check it. I won't be able to check it for you know a week and a half from now. Well, maybe I should take a second one and uh, you know maybe adjust my, my aperture a little bit, see if it works a bit better, if I get a better photograph out of this. I don't know. It's cost me film. I only have a set amount of film. With digital photography, most of that goes right by the wayside. And mm-hmm. so you can take in a given amount of time without increasing your cost – a whole lot. I mean, there's probably a marginal cost of having the, then later to go through and call the images, but you can go take quite a bit of pictures uh, of an object, of a, a trench or whatever it is that you're taking a picture of, and increase the likelihood of getting a very good uh, image in at least one of those, right? Mm-hmm. So you've increased speed, quality without increasing the price. And that's through a particular tool that has now become adopted by all of us. And that, I think, is a good example of what I'm trying to get at uh, about this violation of this good, fast, cheap principle. Well, and I think I think when you're looking at good, fast, and cheap, too, it depends on the evolution of the technology as well. Because I think, I think most things start at probably fast. And then, you know, then as we work out the kinks, they also pick up good. And then as greater adoption happens, they might also pick up cheap, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I mean, looking at digital cameras, I mean, I mean, $20,000 for a high end SLR, you know, just 20 years ago. I mean, yeah. maybe not 20,000, but, you know, with lenses and stuff, it could be. And now, you know, you, you can pick up a, a pretty decent SLR you know, with lenses for, you know, under $1,000, to be honest. I mean, yeah. maybe not a super high quality one, uh, maybe not a professional grade, but good enough for archaeology. And and that just that level just wasn't achievable, you know, back that long ago. So, 
Yeah, well, back to the digital photography, you know, uh, back in 95 or 96, uh, the first time I shot a digital camera was a friend of mine had Apple's, it was this funny kind of rounded off looking digital camera. It cost a few hundred dollars. Uh, he got it and uh, some steep rebate for some reason because he knew somebody and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, not a five finger discount, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I took some pictures with it and it was, it was a fun toy, but they were really grainy and it was 640 by 480. Hmm. So it was not cheap. It was not good. Um, and frankly, it wasn't any faster than taking film uh, yeah. pictures because, you know, then you'd have to take it and hook the thing up uh, to your Mac and download it there. And hopefully you had some, uh, some image editing software, like an old version of Photoshop. Uh, mm-hmm. Wouldn't have been old back then, I guess. But you know what I mean. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then could do something with it. What that something was, was kind of undefined because maybe you were just learning how to do some HTML programming, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but there wasn't a whole lot else to do with it. Um, yeah. And since then, the prices have dropped dramatically and the quality has improved dramatically. Uh, and now it's, you know, again, I keep on referring to the, you know, these devices we're all carrying in our pocket all day long, but you've got a much better camera, much, much better camera on that, that uh, phone that you're carrying around all day. And taking those pictures just becomes an afterthought. You know, here's a picture. Yeah. You test, send it to a friend. You you know, you airdrop it to your computer. You do whatever you need with it. But it's it's reduced on all those fronts. Yeah, uh, two two thoughts on that related to photography because I think that's our biggest example of this whole thing. Is mm-hmm. uh, one I just noticed on Facebook a, a friend, well, kind of a Facebook friend. I don't know him personally, but his wife took pictures. They go to these like heavy metal concerts all the time, and his wife took these pictures. And they're, they're they're pretty much in the front row and off to the side, but they're they're not where the professional photographers are because they're on the other side of the fence and even closer to the stage. Mm-hmm. And so her pictures are just a little farther back with nobody in the front, and she takes really good show photos. And she's doing it all on an iPhone, and she posted these on Instagram, tagged the band in it, and the band asked her if they could use her photos in some promo shots <laughs> because oh. they were so good. Yeah, and, and she's like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then another thing. Uh, that I was just thinking about when you're saying that a new camera technology, I mean, it was new. I remember first seeing it. So I don't know when it was actually new, but I remember first seeing it maybe three or four years ago, those, those um, shifting focus cameras where you can take a picture and then move the focus around after you took the picture. My God, that would be invaluable for archeology span because I mean, how many people just don't know, or this bright sunlight or something like that. And they take a picture that's out of focus. I don't care if they're using a tablet or a camera or whatever, but you always end up taking something that's out of focus. And if you didn't take enough photos, well, now you're screwed because you're 10 hours from the field site. You got to go back or you just lose that photo entirely. But the new, and and I'm sure there's Samsung Android devices. So please, you know, call in and let me know, but, um, or email in, but, uh, the new iPhones that came out last September now have that shifting focus capability. So you mm-hmm. can take a picture with it and go in and refactor what it's focusing on, which I think is just phenomenal. I mean, I don't know how many times I've looked down at a photo board and you're taking a picture of a tin can or something like that. And the last second, you know, the tin can's raised up off the board. And at the last second, the damn thing focuses on the, on the board. And then you're so close that it's just everything's out of focus now. And right. it's like, my God. So... Anyway, that's a good example from camera technology. Let's take a break real quick and come back for segment two and uh, and keep talking about this because I'm sure we have a lot more to say on this subject. Back in a second. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. 
All right, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode one hundred and five. I can't believe it's episode one hundred and five. Anyway, this is a this is probably just as a quick aside here. This is the second longest running podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. The first one is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. We're up to one hundred and sixty something, but one hundred and five is pretty great for a podcast that's only every two weeks. So. Uh, you know, this, this has been pretty awesome. And I think Paul, you've, you've crossed the threshold. I think you've been on more episodes than you haven't. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Cause you started great. around the forties. Yeah. So yeah, we had all those stats a few episodes ago at episode 100. I'd have to look back and see, but I, I think you've definitely been on for a long yeah, time. No, so. I think I'm still below the, uh, the 50% mark, but I think at this point I might close. be the, uh, the top co-host. <laughs> or top recording, be. probably not the top. I don't. <laughs> oh, you're the top. There I'm you the go. top of the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Best of the rest. That's right. Yep. <laughs> All right. So anyway, back to uh, back to good, fast, and cheap. Pick two. All right. So what what other kind of discussions that we had on this? Right. I, I finished off talking about photography last time, but I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. No, no, none that I hadn't uh, that I hadn't already said. I'm sure there's going to be something else uh, popping up, but I just uh, you know another aspect of this, you know, I think that I can probably speak to data collection better than data analysis, but there's certainly a lot that we can say about data analysis or data presentation, which is what started off this whole conversation with uh, Edward Gonzalez Tennant and me um, off mic. With the data collection that you've been a big proponent of, the, uh, you know, the, the tablet-based data collection things like WildNote, but do you think that allows people to increase one, two, or three of this good, fast, cheap uh, triangle? I would expect that it can increase good and fast pretty easily, and cheap depends really on the particular set of, um, of software that's being used, the hardware platform that's being used on, how much training is involved in all those sorts of things. So Maybe, maybe that kind of data collection really does strongly fit into this model. But uh, since you work more closely with it, do you have any opinions? Yeah. And, and the, the cheap part is actually the thing I struggle with doing sales for WildNone because, you know, I, if I'm selling, say, 50 licenses to a company, I mean, depending on what kind of package you're getting, you know, that's upwards of $20,000. And that's not cheap, right? Mm -hmm. And, but, I, and I, I even said it. I just said what I don't like to say. And I, I never say that on a sales call that that's not cheap because that actually is cheap. And you have to look at when you're looking at cost effectiveness on on especially software, something that's usually a one time purchase or at least a recurring you know, annual, but it's still kind of one time for that year, maybe in that fiscal year, depending on how you're doing your billing. You got to look at the long haul on that. You know, like, for example, if you buy a truck, um, you might buy a truck. Let's say you bought it brand new for $45,000. Let's say you can rent a truck for $150 a day. So now you have to you have to look and say, well, if I work 200 day this, days this year, how many days do I have? To, how many years do I have to work before I'm no longer paying for a truck? You know, like that truck is paid off in the sense that I'm not renting anymore. So it's the same thing with software. You got to look out and say, uh, or, or even hardware, you know, you might buy a $5,000 total station, but the option, is, the other option is renting one or doing something else. So, you know, it's, it's always to me, either renting versus not renting, mm -hmm. owning, or it's time savings. So when it comes down to software being good and fast, the cheap comes in and how often are you using it? And what does it cost you to do the alternative? You know, what is the alternative costing you? Maybe it's different software. Maybe it's paper. Maybe it's transcription. Maybe it's something else. But if you're spending, you know, $10,000 every three months on uh, on transcribing your notes, but you can buy $20,000 software for one year, well, you've paid for that software in six months and the other six months is gravy because you saved all that time not having to do the transcription. So you have to look far enough out and say, Am I doing enough work and am I making enough money and am I saving enough time to actually make this down into the cheap category? Because right off the top, it might not look like it's cheap. And I think that's how Esri sells its stuff too. You know, you might buy a license for $6,000 a year, but they're going to say, yeah, but hey, we can do some stuff that no one else can. And if you try to use one of those knockoff, you know, one-off kind of things, you're going to have to use six pieces of software to do what we can do in one piece of software. And by doing that, we're going to save you time because we can integrate with your whole system. And that's how they sell their products. And that's how mm -hmm. they sell people on $6,000 a year. So, or whatever you're paying for your license. So it, that, that I think is where the cheap comes in. It might not, might not be the price tag, but you got to look at the long game on that. And, and any good project manager or 
PI or, you know, accounts manager is going to be able to do that. So, yeah, well, the, yeah. Um, the cheap part, that's also, that's, I think probably the hardest part to, uh, to assess. You'd think maybe good is because that's a, a value yeah. judgment, but I think that within our own fields, we have a good sense of what good is and what good is, mm-hmm. but cheap, especially if you're not time constrained, your time, you know, you might be producing a whole bunch of different tests and a whole bunch of different results or collecting a whole bunch of different kinds of data quickly and feeding that right back into your system as increasing the quality but the time then uh gets pulled out in a certain way that uh you might not be accounting for it as um you know especially if you're working on your own if it's uh, done something as a hobby or uh is that the cost of doing it is kind of buried in your salary mm-hmm. the cheap part becomes really hard to assess because the, the yeah. cost of it is buried someplace. But I was also thinking, too, that, you know, this uh, we started out saying that it's uh, the good, fast, cheap triangle is often a complaint uh, about programming or design, you know, things where they're particular deliverables. And it dawned on me while you were talking about the use is that when I'm thinking about with archaeology, I'm not really necessarily thinking about it like creating a program. I'm thinking about it using a program or sets of programs in order to uh, to work, and so maybe that's mm-hmm. that's a, a fault line here that I have to explore a little more to uh, to understand if um, if this uh, construction is is a little more amenable to uh, to one kind of you know to, to to making something as opposed to using something. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's another thing too. I I always think of making something whenever somebody says that. I think of. Uh, I think of screens, not software, because everybody wants to build their own screens. And <laughs> I mean, it's like a rite of passage almost. It's like constructing your own lightsaber, right? It's uh, like it, they want to build their own screens. Do you have a lightsaber? I know. I mean, you don't. Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> get, get, get with it, Padawan learner. So anyway, um, wow, we're totally geeking out now. So anyway, yeah, it's like constructing your own screens. I don't know how much time. I have spent at companies repairing screens Hmm. and repairing screens is almost as bad as constructing screens because sure, while somebody may be able to get out their tools and, and build a a decent screen, is that what they're being paid to do? Is that their skill set? You know, would you hire a plumber to fix your electrical? No. And, And maybe if you own your own company and you have those, those carpentry skills and you're not actually charging yourself by the hour to build those screens, then sure, that's another story. But when you're looking at a bigger company, and, and you're, you're, you're having one of your archaeologists, because they're the ones that use it, um, build screens because they said, hey, I know how to cut wood and nail stuff, then they can build screens. Then that's one thing. I mean, I built, I built my own screens for a really short shovel testing thing I had to do on a project just last year. But that's because I don't use screens very often. So I built some clunky, heavy screens that I didn't have to cart around. They just pulled them out of the truck. We dug, literally dug four shovel tests and that's all the screens were used for. And that's probably all they'll ever be used for. I still have them. But if I had to carry screens off through the countryside, um, like I did in Vermont or or anywhere on the East Coast, I'm going to buy screens. I'm going to buy lightweight, really well put together screens with inserts that just you can you can buy the replacement inserts. And I might pay, you know, $40, $50 for an insert, but I'm also paying $50 or $60 an hour for someone to do that for me. You know, that works for me. That's their billable rate. Mm-hmm. And and that's what it costs me. It's not the, you know, $20 an hour they're getting as a salary. It's the $60 that they're billing out at. And people never factor that stuff in because hourly wages have have really gone by the wayside as far as thinking about them as actual costs. It's like, oh, I'm working eight hours a day. Now, the, the factor that that's a cost has been shoved to the side. And now I'm just trying to fill up that time, right? We have too many people that weren't trained in business that say, well, I just have to get my people eight hours. No, think about each minute, each, each fragment of an hour that they are working and what that actually costs your company. And when you start thinking that way, well, now you can start seeing the cost savings and actually spending money and, and, and what spending money does for you in the future. So somebody might be able to build you a decent screen, but if, it, if, it, if it's, if they, I've seen people build screens and they screw it all together and now it's a real pain in the ass to get that screen off of there when it inevitably breaks and you have to put new screen on there. I mean, it takes hours and hours and hours and, Oh my God. Another good example of this. I don't know if we're getting off track or not, but, uh, is straightening pin flags. <laughs> oh my God. Do you know how many people I've seen given the task of straightening and organizing pin flags when 
if you just buy a couple PVC tubes and put a cap on them, you can organize your pin flags in the back of the truck rather than people just throwing them in at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and then straightening pin flags, they usually get bent because they're thrown in the back of the truck and, and they're no good when they're bent. I mean, they're really not, but honestly, if you throw away the bent ones or throw away the rusty ones or the ones that people wrote all over and just buy new ones, they're not that expensive. Yeah. It, it's phenomenal. What archeologists don't see as costs anymore in their head because they're not in charge of the budget. They're not in charge of anything else. And this, and this just floats right on down to software and hardware. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I could go for uh, hours on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to cut you off before you go into a yeah. full rant here. Please, please do. Um, but, you know, uh, I, those are interesting examples, actually. I mean, physical, we're not even talking about software and no. about technological tools there. Uh, but it does make me think of uh, two kind of stereotypes of uh, archaeologists. One is that we are, uh, we're do-it-yourselfers. We you know, we are mm-hmm. generally a pretty handy lot. And so for us to fix something rather than buy a new one is just kind of second nature. That's what we've been right. doing most of us, most of our lives. It's how we think about the world. And the other is that um, a lot of us are also cheapskates. And maybe there's an intersection yes. between those two. <clears throat> but, you know, a cost that doesn't bear an explicit price tag is easier to justify than one that does. Or mm-hmm. at least justify to oneself, maybe not to one's employer. But uh, yeah. Uh, and to bring it back to the tech, uh, one of my complaints, and I'm certainly have been guilty of this is that, um, archaeologists starting out on a project, how often have you seen people go and design their own database for their particular project? Oh yeah. Almost every time. Almost every time. And it is usually a huge waste, a huge sunk cost because, the person who's doing it or a group of people who are doing it may or may not be especially good archaeologists. They may or may not be especially good programmers, but the chance of being both of those and having the time to be able to put something together properly is uh, is really generally pretty unlikely. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the problem uh, is that everybody sees their own data sets and what they're, you know, they're their research design is a little different from the next one over, even from the previous one they did. So, uh, so it, it leads to that, that, impulse to to redesign everything all the time but i think that's interesting that you mentioned it because it seems very very familiar to me what you're saying about uh, <laughs> about fixing screens and what i've seen about uh, creating a database it seems like it's the yeah. same exact impulse well archaeologists are the kings and queens of reinventing the wheel every single time because my wheel has characteristics that your wheel does not i'll tell Absolutely. you what they both they both roll right <laughs> so you know i i've never bought an rv and, and and I always go back to an RV as an example, though, because I think um, from what I heard, uh, and I, I have actually done some research on buying an RV. If you buy a brand new RV right from the factory, right, you now unless you go to one of those sales on like, you know, the fairgrounds lot or something like that. But if you buy it right from the factory, um, they're typically built, from what I understand, to about 70 percent. Right. Because the base frame of an RV, what it looks like on top, you know, probably the the interior components of the uh, of, of the driver's area and things like that. The stairs. I mean, all that stuff is going to be the same no matter what you get. But this person might want this kind of paneling on the inside. This person might want carpet over here. This person might want, you know, these kind of countertops, whatever. Mm-hmm. That extra 30 percent is, is customizable. And a lot of things that are high end are, are like that. And it's the same way as if somebody came up with a database and actually decided to sell that and monetize what they've come up with, but strip down their unique features and say, listen, I've put together something that that works for probably 75% of archaeology sites around the world. And you buy this from me for, I don't know, $500. And for an extra, you know, you get you get three hours worth of development time. You tell me what your particulars are. I'll change the drop down menus. I'll add this module. I'll take away this module. But chances are, you're going to be able to build something that works for nearly everyone right out of the gate without even talking to them and then just tweak it a little bit to work for their project or to work for their situation. And that's what we've done with WildNote, not to bring it back to that purposely. But I've created a bunch of what I call the archaeology standard forms and from shovel testing to artifact identification. And my thought is, having worked in in half the states in this country, that 
I've nailed down what almost everyone can use. And all you should have to do is go through and make a few minor tweaks and you can go to town. You know, for example, we've got a client using the shovel testing form today. They walked in, they made a couple changes and boom, they're out the door working, you know, five minutes worth of changes and they're out the door working. They didn't have to spend three hours building a shovel testing form because this one works. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's what people don't understand, you know, especially grad students. They, they, they really are trying to fill up their time sometimes and say, hey, I want to do this. So maybe they want to learn how to do databases, which is another conversation. If you're a grad student, maybe you should learn how to build a database. And maybe the best way to do that is to build your own database. But if you're working for a company and you've just got to get it done, I mean, shop it around and say, hey, has anybody done this? And can I pay you for the architecture that used to create that? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, so many inefficiencies in archaeology, and that's how I got into the digital game to begin with, because that's the easiest way to cure a lot of efficiencies. But there's so many more efficiency inefficiencies that we have to deal with, and most of it is just mindset. It's just getting over the fact that you're, you're going to have to pay to have somebody else do something, and in the end, save you a lot more time, energy, and money. So, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like we did go off the rails a little bit on this podcast, but uh, I think we have a good discussion. I knew we anyway. would. I was kind of hoping we would. I wanted to see, again, I wanted to see where this went because, I, you know, I still, part of me, I mean, I don't know that I'm any closer to any kind of an answer about uh, what I think about uh, this this triangle. I mean, I've, I've loved this this saying for a long time, mm -hmm. too. Uh, and I've used it, you know, like in meetings and things. Oh, good, fast, cheap. Which are you going to, you know, pick two? <laughs> which is it going to be? Yeah. You know, I work with perfectionists and we always feel like we can do the, the good and fast. Uh, cheap, well, uh, yeah, somebody's paying our salary, but to us it's cheap. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but then there's always the question in the back of the mind, is this really the best use of our time that we're building out this custom software, you know, to... Well, we're right now in the middle of high school registration. So instead of using an off-the-shelf package, we have a very heavily built-up web app that uh, that we put here, put together here. And it's very customized to the way that we do things. And it'll never, maybe not never, but it's pretty unlikely it would work anywhere else. Yeah. Um, what, that's not cheap. It's very good. Um, fast, no, because we can't even measure it because it's been uh, iterated over years and modified. But part of me still wants to go back to the uh, to what Edward was saying when we were discussing, where he just took some off the shelf pieces, QGIS, uh, some publicly uh, available, some public domain maps, and layered together something that he could make a quick little web app for his students to go out in the field. And he said it only took a few minutes to do, and I thought, mm -hmm. well, that's really interesting because he did it fast, and he did it cheap, and it's. Pretty good, certainly within uh, <laughs> that it met the needs of what they wanted to do. And it's something that yeah. he wouldn't have been able to do a few years prior, uh, certainly not as quickly and, and as inexpensively. And that's the that's a bit. And maybe that gets to the thing, to the example of the digital cameras and getting better and cheaper um, with time. Uh, but, you know, I do feel like it's not as inviolable of a rule as uh, as I have often thought it to be. But he was also able to do that because, just like I said in the first segment, he understood what the capabilities were of these things that he was already doing. And he was able to take these components, put them together, and make something that works together. And right. he was able to do it relatively quickly because he had familiarity with that stuff. So, yeah, and that familiarity is uh, – <laughs> that's not key. fast. No. no. No, and sometimes sometimes that's what you're paying for too. You're paying for that familiarity. Like I. Right. I heard something uh, a few months ago uh, on one of the po I do pod I do professional podcast editing outside of the APN as well, and uh, I'm in these podcast editing groups on Facebook. And somebody one thing somebody said was, you know, you're not paying me fifty dollars an hour to to get it done in in you know thirty minutes or what did he say? It's not costing me. It's not the t the cost that to get it done in thirty minutes. It's the ten years it took me to get this down to thirty minutes. Right. You know that's what you're paying for. That's why it costs fifty dollars an hour or seventy dollars an hour, or whatever, to do this. Because I spent all this time perfecting that process, and that's that's actually what you're paying for, not the actual you know thirty minutes of time. Right. So. It's like you're not paying the the, the lawyer two hundred dollars an hour, right? For, because each hour of his time is worth two hundred dollars. It's uh you know it's all yeah. that schooling that he went through, and you're, and you're paying his you're paying his student loans. Let's be honest. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so if you see a lawyer and they're under like thirty five, you're definitely paying their student loans. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's it for this segment. Good topic, Paul. I like when these we can kind of get into these theoretical things. You know, send us your thoughts on this. Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, or you can find both Paul and I's Twitter handles on the show notes, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech, and, and give us your thoughts. So, yeah, I would love to hear if anybody else has an example, something that they're really proud mm-hmm. of that they think might be a violation of this principle. Uh, or conversely, something that, that they're proud of or ashamed of that yep. uh, you know failed on one of the three and would maybe hold it up. Um, it'd be just interesting to see what people think about uh, about this whole notion and uh, and how they work with, through, or around it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that's it for this. We'll be back in just a second with our app of the day segment. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 105. And this is the App of the Day segment. And I'm going to head this off with an app that I started using about a month ago. A little over a month ago, I think. And I heard about it because, as I mentioned in the last segment, I, I do all kinds of podcast editing and I'm part of all these podcasting groups. And somebody mentioned an app called Chirp and it was all about micro podcasting. I was like, what are you talking about? And so I went over and checked it out and they've already made some improvements since I since I got this. So I won't mention the things that were wrong because they've actually fixed them. But what Chirp is, it's a really interesting, I'm going to go ahead and call it social media platform, but it's a social media platform based around uh, 10 second to three minute long audiograms, or uh, they're calling them micro podcasts, but I don't, I don't know if I really even see it that way. Although the people that are on here are kind of using it in that way. And right now, most of the people that are on Chirp that I've seen are, you know, coaches and entrepreneurs and, and people that are trying to um, essentially use Chirp as a funnel for their services. Uh, they're not really promoting it that way, but that's exactly what they're doing. So I'm looking at my my digest right here, the people I'm following, and I can see all the um, Chirps in, in date order, how many listens they had. I can comment on them. And, and again, these are short things. Now, I'm mentioning this because I, I typed in archaeology and, and me and former host of this show, Chris Sims, and his Go Dig a Hole podcast are the only things that show up <laughs> when you oh. type in archaeology. And I just did that again today just to see if that's an updated. Nope, still there. So not a lot of content for archaeologists over there. However, uh, and, and one of the things I requested, because I actually had a phone call with the uh, one of the um, co-founders, because I, I guess there's such a new platform that anybody that signs up, I don't know how they found me, but they sent me an email and said, hey, uh, do you want to have a quick call and, and go over what you like and don't like about the platform? It's like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. But one of the comments I had was being able to switch accounts easily. And because otherwise I've got to sign out of the app here and then sign back in with a different account. And instead of doing that, I'm just muddling everything together. Like I, I just started a new um, a Adobe Audition training uh, training session once a month. And I, I put up a chirp about that today. And uh, it's just, I think it's like a minute and a half long. And uh, the cool thing is, though, is this is an all-in-one platform. And if you hit the little microphone button down on the bottom and you have a lot of music that you can choose from if you want background music, but you have background music and you kind of play that as you're recording it, you don't add it on layer later, which is kind of a weird thing. And they've, they've got a weird interface that takes a minute to figure out how to actually get the music. It'll auto duck, which means when you start it, once you start talking, it'll actually come down automatically. But then when you hit stop or you stop talking and then you want the music to keep going, you have to hit record again and then increase the music again. So it takes a little while to kind of get your head wrapped around that. But then a couple things that they've improved just in the month that I've started using this is they allow you to import a file. So today for the first time, I actually recorded something at my desk in Adobe Audition using my mixer and my SM58 microphone, so it sounds really good. Layered some music under it, 
and it was only like I said, a minute and a half. I didn't even edit the thing. I just I just spoke for like a minute and a half. I had the web page up that I was talking about. Not no audio processing on this. Um, well, I did the audio processing, but no editing on this. And then I mastered it real quick, did the mastering techniques, exported it to my iCloud drive. And then I forgot to mention this. It's iOS only. So sorry about that. I didn't even plan that. But because of that, uh, you can import now from your iCloud drive. So I saved it to my um, iMac and then immediately went to my phone. And since it's such a small file, it was already there in the iCloud drive on my phone. And I was able to import straight in. And then they added a couple more things because they you, you cannot just not only just look at this in chirp, they've got a really nice interface. If you go over to Twitter at um, Archie Webby, you'll probably be able to see this uh, or on my Facebook page. And they two new things that they've developed. One, you can save this audio file over and it brings in the text like a it's a 140 character text that you can put attached to this with hashtags and things like that. That went right over to Twitter and Facebook. And then they also had this new thing where you can create a video. That's basically the text that you use. It's not very good right now, but it's basically the text that you used over a gradient color background with the audio right there. And that's good for Instagram. So uh, Instagram and some other things. So anyway, it's a it's a new platform. Like I said, you can search different hashtags. I started doing, when I got down on that project a few weeks ago, these daily safety chirps. So I would talk about stuff that I was concerned with that day and I was actually recording it in my truck on the way in to the meet the crew at the hotel, which probably wasn't the safest thing to do, but <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> but with no editing, <laughs> right. With no editing, like between stoplights, I was able to just, you know, record it and then, you know, get it posted. And, you know, I did one on rattlesnakes and heat safety and sunscreen and, you know, clothing and other stuff like that. And, and then since nobody's on chirp, that's in archeology, span I was actually, you know, saving these out to Facebook. And I think the, uh, I think the ArcPodNet Facebook page as well. And then like a week and a half into the project, I came down with pretty severe sore throat and like bronchitis that I'm still getting over right now. So I actually stopped doing it because I would wake up in the morning and I couldn't even talk for a little while, which my wife wishes I was home when that happened, but um, I wasn't. So she uh, she didn't get the benefit of me not talking in the morning. So um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I know. It's a rough life. But so anyway... Check out this platform. It's free. I don't know how they're making any money. There's no ads. There's no anything, uh, which means it probably won't be around very long because usually that free model means you know they're not monetizing and uh, they might have a lot of investment capital, which is why they're not monetizing. But if they don't figure that out soon, that money's going to run out and they're going to have to figure out a way to monetize. So head over there while there's no ads, <laughs> while there's no in audio ads like Facebook does or or SoundCloud and. Uh, and, and there's, like I said, there's, there's literally no ads. So um, check me out. I'm just Chris Webster. Um, you can find my, I, I don't even know if I have like a, like a screen name because it doesn't show me that anywhere. It just says Chris Webster. But if you look up archaeology, then you'll find me. And then Chris Sims created one for his Go Dig a Hole podcast, but also one for himself. And it looked like he just did that as a mistake because there's no chirps over there. And then he created the other one. So you'll find those two. Um, I've got 12 chirps up there. 22 followers as of the recording of this uh, this show here. So, yeah, it's just one more thing. It might go nowhere. Who knows? But I kind of like the idea of being able to quickly record my thoughts about something and then get it out into the world in an audio format um, because it's just a little more engaging in an audio format than, say, a, a, a bunch of written text. And there's still applicability to that. But the nice thing about this is I can go to my, my home screen here and the people that I'm following, I can just hit play all on my feed and it's like a bunch of micro podcasts right in a row. It's like the Alexa skills people are doing in the morning. You know, it's like you wake up and you have Alexa do your do your things and it, it'll give you the quick news. Um, some podcasts have a shortened version of their podcast. It's just like 30 seconds or a minute long. It's kind of like that, you know, almost getting a morning briefing or whenever you want to do it. I can come in here and just get, you know, a bunch of micro podcasts from a bunch of people I'm following and just start my day with a bunch of neat little information. I, I have a 20 minute walk here and it's a good way. It's a good way to do that. So um, check it out. Chirp. You can find their app at uh, chirpapp.com and it's C-H-I-R-P-A-P-P.com. There's literally nothing on their website. Um, it just takes you to the iTunes store. So you don't even need to go there. Just look for it on your iOS device and you'll, and you'll, you'll pick it up there again, free, no ads. Check it out. All right. Well, if you do go on to the app store to it um, and you type in Chirp to find it, the first thing that you're going to get is called Chirp Books. 
don't do like oh. what I just did and download that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then if you squir- scroll on down, you'll see other things about birds and so on until you get to sh- chirp short podcasts. So um, just a you know heads up that uh, don't be an idiot like I just was. There you go. I see. I didn't even cl- I didn't even search for it because I think I clicked on a link of wherever I saw it and it just took me right there. So um, yeah, I didn't even know that the icon is yellow with a black C and then a white C inside of it. So look right. for that. So don't get the uh, one that's a white <laughs> icon with a black C and a yellow band at the bottom because that's not the oh, same Jesus. one that Chris was just talking about. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that I couldn't help but think, especially with given its name, it sounds like uh, Chirp is trying to be to podcast what Twitter is to blogs. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think I'm going to have to check it out. It could be fun. Um, And one thing I'm noticing on their website too here, and I don't know if this is a precursor of things to come or if they got rid of it, but one of their images on their website has um, the record screen and it looks exactly the same except for one thing. There's a button below the background music that says voice filters. So I don't know if you can have fun and change your voice and do like a robot or something like that, but there's no voice filters on mine doesn't say that at all. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if they got rid of it or if it's a feature they're going to come out with and they just haven't rolled out yet. But, you know, if you use something like Adobe Audition or GarageBand um, or Audacity to record your chirps on the desktop, you can alter your voice there. And and if you don't know how, take my Adobe Audition editing class at (laughs) propodcastnow.com. I had just one other comment too, Uh, you know, scrolling on the actual correct page here on the, uh, on the app store, it's got 4.9 out of five five stars with 684 reviews. So, um, it's not too bad. The longevity, the uh, reach of the platform being up for up in the air. Uh, it looks like the people who are actually started using it are enjoying it quite a bit. And, um, I guess it's Mm -hmm. probably not too buggy or crashy. So that's, uh, that's hopeful. Yeah. The one thing I will say that it does, that's really strange is again, I was using this while I was driving and I was in a uh, spotty service area at one point and I just had to get something out and I started recording and then I couldn't send it because I started recording when I had service and then I went out of service for like two hours and there was no option to save that recording as a draft. That's another thing I requested is the ability to save it as a draft because uh, if you're using the microphone on your iPhone, and I don't know how Android works on this, but if you're using it on your microphone and you go out of the application while you're in the recording mode, then your time in the upper left-hand corner has got this red bubble around it because the microphone is still active. So it's still burning your battery. And since I couldn't save it as a draft and it wouldn't let me out of the recording, like it physically wouldn't let me out without exporting it. And I was like, what the hell? And I don't want to lose this. So I ended up losing it because I... Uh, it wouldn't let me do anything else like on my phone, anything that used a microphone or anything like that because it was locked into it. So I actually had to kill the app, lose my recording and then do that. So all the way through the recording process, all the way through sharing, that little icon is is red and the time is and which means the microphone is active. So that's something they got to work out from a software standpoint. But the developers seem to be pretty hot on this and they seem like they've got a lot of good um uh, a lot of good people there. And I'm just looking here. One of my chirps has 141 listens, um, nice. which, you know, yeah, that's not terrible. Snakes. Oh, this one has a high, uh, no, it's the one where I talked about going live on the, on the radio, but one, oh, oh Hey, Paul, one, I mentioned uh, new, new APN episode, Archaeotech podcast, one one digital humanities with Sebastian Heath. I was just talking about it. That one got 160 listens. So nice. Yeah, only 16 likes, so most of the people did not actually like it. But, you know, whatever. (laughs) Now, you know what I wonder is I I shared all that to Twitter and Facebook. I wonder, since that's through their Mm. embedded player, I bet the listen counts over there, but they don't have the ability to like it unless they have it come over to the Chirp app. Mm, Quite possible. Yeah, I have no idea. So, Well, go play with that. Find out. I know, I know. So, all right. So that's Chirp. What do you got, Paul? Okay. Uh, as opposed to you having used that app for a couple months, the app that I'm going to talk about today, I have not used at all. Um, <laughs> Solid review. <laughs> it's going to be a great review. So this is an informational one. And uh, I'm reviewing it, actually. I'm bringing it up today because this is one that one of my coworkers was raving about to me. Uh, and it's not something that I think I have any particular need for. But I wanted to bring it up because it's one of these quality of life kinds of things that I think that uh, mm-hmm. that a lot of our listeners might like. Uh, and it could be very helpful for the shovel bums out there um, who are trying to live in hotel rooms. So the, the, the app that I'm talking about is called AnyList. 
uh, and the website is anylist.com. And it's available on iOS and on Android. And when you first hear it, you're like, okay, great. Yet another list app. And I'm sure I passed right by it because that's what I thought. But no, it's not just <laughs> yet another list app, though you can use it for lists. Um, it starts out, it looks like it's a grocery list specific list app. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it allows you to, to, uh, to enter recipes and, uh, and then generate your grocery lists from those recipes. Uh, hmm. And it has some cool features like it's it's a freemium app. Okay, so let me get into the pricing quickly. So it's uh, it's a subscription. It costs nine ninety nine for one year for one seat, or fourteen ninety nine per year for a family plan. Hmm. That's not bad. No, it's not bad, uh, especially if you if you're going to find this useful. And I know again, my coworker he paid for it because he found it very useful. Uh, so you can bring in different recipes, ones that you like, ones that are standards, whatever. Um, and generate your uh, your grocery list directly from there. You can also there's a calendar view, uh, and this is one of the um, the premium uh, features. paid features, yeah, yeah. Uh, where you can plan out you know the next week of meals, for example, and break it all down into what you have to get at the grocery store when you're there. The uh, the recipes you can import directly from websites, so it has hooks. That uh, that will you know you go to Epicurious or all recipes or whatever you mm-hmm. find one that you like and right there in uh, mobile Safari I'm not sure what you would do it in on Android but um, yeah Chrome, Chrome I would hope yeah Chrome <laughs> um, I don't know if it works with other browsers is what I mean uh, and you can just import your recipes directly into uh, into the uh, the app and have it all nicely organized now again it doesn't solve any particular need for me because i hardly ever cook with a recipe i i cook very frequently i cook a few times a week at least and uh, but there's a grocery store when we're in the city there's a grocery store right in the corner so i don't have to plan to go to the grocery store and when i'm in the country there's a very good grocery store just a short distance away that i'm always at because they have the world's best beer selection um and <laughs> And uh, and I go into a grocery store with a vague idea of what I want to cook for dinner, and I come out with whatever the ingredients are that I might need for that. So I don't I don't pre-plan. It doesn't really fit the way that I like cooking, and that's why this particular program, this particular app, wouldn't have a whole lot of appeal to me. But it's really nicely laid out, and it's interesting to see a list app again that's very targeted to doing this one thing, and apparently doing this one thing really well. Let me just mention a few of the uh, the features that it gives you for the freemium. Uh, so the paid features, um, this one's nice, is you can then use it on a web app. Uh, so if you don't have oh, yeah. your phone, you can share recipes and lists back and forth with family members. That's built into it on the free version. It has a, uh, for paid, it also there's an Apple Watch uh, app for it. Like I said, the recipe web import. For free, it gives you five that you can do and if you want to do more than five you uh you have to pay for it that makes sense that's the way they try to get you hooked uh the calendar again that's a, that's a paid feature photos recipe photos recipe scaling hmm. that's a really cool one right so you get that's a recipe cool, yeah. for two people but you're cooking for five yep stop doing math let the uh, computer <laughs> do it for you right Wait, uh, I want to I want to do two thirds times nine and a half. Yes, that exactly. sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, item prices, stores, and you know. So anyhow, it, um, I'm just bringing this up because this seems like something that again my coworker really likes it. I think that it would be useful for a lot of people, and it really seems to be a well thought out, well integrated uh, application mm-hmm. that uh, that you know. If I had a use for it, I'm sure I'd love it. Yeah, I. I when I first pulled the page up, I was like, add items to Siri, create a list. I was like, well, you can do that on Apple with our notes app. And exactly, then share, which is why I've overlooked it. And you can share the note with anybody mm-hmm. you want, and you can both add to it. You can add items with Siri. Um, however, I, ju- I literally just sent this to my wife because I'm sure she's going to buy it. Um, and <laughs> she's always doing meal planning. She was just doing meal planning last night, and she finds recipes and then she goes in the kitchen. What do we have? And then creates a, a list. We used to use something. I don't think we use it much. Any, I think she still does use it a little bit called Grocery Gadget. And basically, that was exactly the same thing as creating grocery lists. And you could you could part out your list by store. So if you're going to like several different stores or something like that, mm-hmm. and then you could um, it would it would actually 
learn your behaviors for how you moved around the store. If you always walked in and went to the left and that was produce and then around, it would actually organize wow. everything in That's that way. Cool. Yeah. Now, the difference with this is is really the meal planning and adding recipes and then being able to quickly tap on those ingredients and bring them over. I think that's the game changer for this one, um, which is why I think she's probably going to be really loving it for that reason. And then the meal planning. I mean, I just watched calendar appointments come over my calendar. She puts it on our shared calendar, like what we're having for dinner every night. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was like, I don't have the brain power for it. Like, just just go ahead and do that. You know, I'll eat whatever you whatever you say we're eating. And uh, so she does that meal planning and and it works out really well. So I think this would be a good addition to that. So yeah, pretty cool. Well, why don't you uh, let her see it and, uh, and then let me know yeah. sometime in the future if she likes it because... You know, it's one of these ones that a lot of people like. Have her come on and do a guest review. There you oh, go. That'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. Say, okay, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. This is how you actually <laughs> use it. This is what you can do. These are the ins and outs. Right. Right. All right. Well, uh, let us know if you use either of those applications. And also let us know what your favorite apps are. You know, what are you using just to live your life or what are you using in the field? Even desktop applications. You know, what's what's going on out there? Let us know and uh, we might talk about it on the show. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks, Chris. And we'll see you guys next time around. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.